Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. This is the word of the Lord. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I've applied my heart to seek and to search out for wisdom uh, all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. wind. Uh, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all uh, who are over Jerusalem before me, and my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also uh, is but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom... Is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases in sorrow. Chapter 2, I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart uh, how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of the growing trees. Like if you have that in your arsenal, you've done some stuff. I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I had all great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had come before me in Jerusalem, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done in the toil uh, I had expanded in doing it, and behold, all, again, was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun, so I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king only what was already been done? Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in dark. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen, will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated my life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity, and again, striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise or a fool, yet he will be a master of all of which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all my toil and my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. 
This also is vanity and a great evil. What has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils underneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. Even the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person uh, than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw uh, is from the hand of God for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, uh, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Father, be with us. Would you help us see our lives correctly? What has meaning and how much meaning it has to us and where ultimate meaning and satisfaction come? Lord, give us wisdom in that. Let us see you. Let us behold you. Lord, free us from chasing all these shiny toys and shiny things that ultimately won't mean much. Let us see and obey and experience you. We pray that in your name. Amen. All right, so Ecclesiastes week two. If you were with us last week or if you listen in to the podcast and then you're back for more of this chicken soup for the soul, encouraging, feel good, lighthearted, fun book, right? Joking aside, uh, Ecclesiastes does something we're not used to. It does something profoundly different than, than pretty much every other book of the Bible. It goes dark, like really, really, really dark into what it calls life under the sun, but it does it for a reason. It's not trying to leave you in some sort of fatalistic, fetal position of despair, just crying. The author goes dark in order that we may walk into the hope of eternity, we will find as much of the world lives between two fixed bookend moments of their life. Their gaze, their hope, their focus, their dreams, their, their attention will, will focus between the, the points of their birth and their death, which, which could be understandable. But the problem is, is, is when a person does that, when they're only fixated on, on the time in between those periods of time, they tend to, to, be, they tend to be a little bit desperate and a little bit anxious Fear ends up kicking in quite often and probably some frustration as well because what they end up doing is they try and squeeze too much out of the time period in between those fixed points. The preacher in Ecclesiastes wants to gather those who are God's people and remind them that death is just the transition from the opening scene of your life into what is the majority of your story and actually the, the bulk of the good stuff. It's just a transition point. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, if he is your king, if you have been redeemed, your eternity is, is fixed and your destiny is, is a restored creation and a perfect creation and a perfect leader and a perfect king and no, many, no, no more warring over votes and elections and who's going to lead it. None of that, right? Relationship with God, the elimination of death and shame, no, not even a hint uh, of the brokenness of, of sin. This is in your future and right relationship with the Godhead that is not hampered by anything ever again. This is the destiny for those who believe. I mentioned it last week, and I think it'll be a carryover theme into a lot of this book. Friends, our faith is either everything or it's nothing. And we need to begin to understand that. It either means something and it filters into the corners of our life and, and, and the shame of our life and the pursuit of our life, or it filters into nothing and we're just kind of fools. 
When I look across the landscape of society, there's a lot of people who claim Christianity. I'm not trying to throw stones. They, they claim Christ in, in proclamation or maybe on a survey or on a Facebook post or, or just whatever, but then they actually kind of live more like an atheist who has no promise made over them and to them. That is, they claim to be saved, to, to be redeemed, to have a reconciled relationship with God, to have their proverbial t- ticket punched to heaven, but they live as if the here and now is still all that they're ever going uh, to get, and they're just trying to wring everything they can out of the days that they have here, meaning that their eternity doesn't play any, into anything into their, their, their current reality. The teacher will tell us, if you're God's child, hey, you don't need to do that. Here's where you get to exhale. You don't have to hold your breath like these 70, 80, whatever you get years are all you have. You can enjoy this life for its ups and its downs and then place confidence in you have a whole lot coming after no matter what this life throws at you. This is meant to let you breathe. If you hear that and think, man, I don't know, come on, that sounds far-fetched. I believe in Jesus. I'm trying to follow him. Pray to prayer. I'm, you know, I'm here. I'm doing the thing, but I don't know how to really have that, that idea of eternity filter into the here and now. I don't know how to plan for what I don't taste and what I can't see and what I can't quantify. Like, I'm not, I don't know if, I don't know if I know how to do that. If that struggle seems real to you, man, I just remind you of the definition of faith in the Bible. We just finished the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, now faith is the assurance of the things that you're hoping for, meaning you can't see them, and the convictions of the things that you, you can't see with your, your eyes. Faith is not a, a nod of the, of the plausibility of there being a, a, a God and a, and a structure of a Godhead. Faith is the assurance, the steadfast confidence, and the hope in what your eyes can't actually lay a hold of at the time. This is Faith. Right, what, what's the inner secret between us? We are the weirdos who plan our lives around the God that we can't see with our eyes and around the gospel that we didn't even hear first. Someone else had to tell it to us. And the future home that we've never actually stepped our foot in and we haven't seen with our own eyes, that's who we are. That's the tension that we have to become comfortable with. And that's what I meant about your faith has to kind of be everything or it's nothing. We are banking on what the world goes. You're a fool. I don't know why you would do that. This is faith. If you can't to any degree do that, I would just ask you, I wonder why then you think you have faith. Right? If, that, if that's the definition, because biblically, even, even we see that it's impossible to please God without faith. And if there is no hope in the things that you can't see, I mean, I wonder why that, what's happening there. And, and I don't say that to maybe hurt you or convict you. I say that to maybe point out that maybe the Lord is trying to draw you into deeper faith for the first time where you do have a confidence in what you haven't before. Maybe the Lord would say, hey man, come on, I've got more for you. I want you to trust me with this. And I want you to trust me with the things that you can't see. And I want you to, I want you to trust me with the stuff that you've, you've held back from me before. Hey, I've got something more for you. I pray that your heart would be open to that. It might be helpful to recognize that in Genesis during the creation Account. We kind of talked about this in, in our missional community a little bit this week. There's a lot of Genesis and creation language that flows over into this book when you begin to look for it. But in the creation account, in Genesis, in the beginning, God looked upon his creation and he said the, these words, it is very good. Not it's all right, it's okay, it's fine-ish. 
It's, it's very good. That was the situation of life under the sun. And now, though, it's, it's but a shadow of that, of what it once was or what it was meant to, to be. The author of, of, of Ecclesiastes says, you know, what, what was once very good now is actually vanity. It's almost meaningless in some ways. It's like a vapor or smoke. It's there and it just kind of disappears on you. But again, this isn't what once was. This isn't what should be, and this isn't what will be again in the future. We are stuck in what authors have called East of Eden, where the fullness of the very good has been marred and twisted and distorted by sin and brokenness. The writing of the preacher in Ecclesiastes when he says life is vanity, when he points out that all of our toil in the long run just isn't worth nearly as much as we thought, because our shiniest toys and our best accomplishments and even our legacies will be virtually forgotten in a couple of generations, right? right after we go back into the dirt. When he points out that we do not have the ability, we have the capacity, but not the ability to, to be satisfied and fulfilled and have eternal joy on our own. These words feel heavy and they feel sad. And, and honestly, they at times feel offensive, don't they? Because our hearts want to believe that we're still in very good though. That's why. Here's the reality. We want to live in a Genesis 1 world, but we're not acknowledging that we're in a Genesis 3 world. That ache of our heart is where hope comes in. Hey, we're hoping for that another day. It's just not what's here now. And we see this all over the place. When people have a, a complete inability to suffer or have hard things in their life, it's because they forget that they're living in the life under the sun through the author not softening the reality of all of this and the toil, we must embrace it because it is what leads us to the promise of God. Here's the logic. It's only when you see how bad the dark stuff is that your heart is able to be overwhelmed with how good the good stuff is. So what do you have to do with me? You gotta fight the urge to look away. Why? So you can see and behold the promises of God to you. If you look away, it's not as sweet. You got to own how bad the Genesis 3 fall world is to see the beauty of what he's promised over you. In last week's text, the thesis is that all the things that we try and find satisfaction, enjoy in, or like vapor, they vanish on us. That's the theme. It's, it's something that you see for a little bit, and, and, and then it's gone, and it's gone forever. That chasing contentment It's like a grown man sprinting across the hillside, believing he's going to catch the wind in a bottle. Knowing that's the thesis, now the preacher decides to conduct an experiment, which I appreciate because I'm a cynic at heart. He goes, let's see if what I said is true. Let's see if we actually can find satisfaction under the sun. So he's going to test the theory for us of his own thesis so we can see if he's crazy or if he's telling us the truth. So he's going to unfold several different experiments in a couple different buckets or areas of interest. The first is, can we find satisfaction in knowledge? Then can we find satisfaction in, in our pleasure will be the, the second one, and then maybe tied to the second, or maybe it's a third category, doesn't matter. The, the other one is toil. What we work and what we do and what we're aiming for at life, can we find satisfaction through one of those areas in our life? We should see that he's testing what many have become comfortable with calling the American dream. The idea that secularism has brought to the, to the forefront is, is really that more or something more that you don't have now equals 
contentment or better. That life's problems can be solved or mitigated by a quest to find and fill our lives with either more or something that we don't have yet. So, so here's the question I think is worth just kind of analyzing a little bit before. How would you answer this question before we go into his experiment? And what I'm asking you is, what does your heart want to run experiments on? If only I had fill in the blank, life would be better. What's your answer there? If only this happened, I would be happier. What's the thing that your heart tells you would complete things? That would make life worthwhile, that would make you just over the moon. What is it? There's a lot of value in recognizing that because the enemy is going to tempt you with that. He's going to try and turn that into something that it probably shouldn't be. I know my answer to that question is highly dependent on the season that I am in. I am erratic. I like tons of stuff. Maybe you're different. Maybe your thing that, that, that you would fill in the blank, maybe yours is steady state. Mine's not. But it's worth pondering and asking, do I know what mine is? The first pursuit that the preacher gives us the experiment or the scouting report over is wisdom. He says, I've been the king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all the things done underneath the sun. He set his gaze on his pursuit to chase wisdom and understanding. And he didn't just do like a little Google search. Hey, I'm somewhat interested. What's, what's wisdom? He set out to, to know things and how they work and to grasp knowledge. How did he do in the pursuit? Well, the word says he was wiser than anyone before him. God gave him profound wisdom and understanding like no other. So he could see uh, that the pursuit of wisdom wouldn't actually solve everything. And look what, what the preacher says as he dug into finding wisdom uh, to kind of comprehend the intricacies of life under the sun. He says, I, I found out from Jump Street that it was an unhappy business. I was like, this is going to be good. This is going to be happy. He, he dips his toes in. He's like, this is awful. This is, this is not at all what I thought. The mistake of the Enlightenment era, which is repeated over and over and over again, is that we'll kind of arrive to a certain level of understanding of wisdom or knowledge. It's just going to fix everything. Hey, if we can just kind of figure out X, Y, and Z, the, the belief is that people won't kill or steal or be evil. If we can just kind of like get a little bit smarter and, and know a little bit more, the world would just kind of be nice and just kind of auto-correct and, and fix all of the things that are not right. But that has literally never actually played out. This is why the preacher says, even though I gained all of that wisdom, even though I made it my job to learn and see how things worked and to, and to become wise, he says it's all vanity and like the chasing of the wind. Why? Because it didn't fix anything. Verse 15, he says it this way. This is what he's speaking into the frustration of what wisdom won't fix. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. What is this? This is a lament. Because this wisdom is a road to nowhere. Because no amount of wisdom or information will fix what is broken or solve what needs solving in my heart or in the world. So the teacher is, is wrestling with the, with the telos, the end, the, the final gain. And he does this over and over in the book. We saw this in the, in the first sermon. He's going, okay, what is the ultimate good of that? 
right? What does that actually get me? What's the ultimate good, the telos, the end, the final gain of wisdom? And what he finds out is, is wisdom to, to a certain level is actually pretty worthless because it doesn't solve what he hoped would be solved. It doesn't fix the human condition. It doesn't even bring the wise person peace because he kind of calls it wisdom a broken road of suffering. He said, I tried to live in wisdom. And he goes, hey, man, I tried the other side too. And I tried to live out of folly and none of that brought real meaning to life in the world. And again, more of the lament. He goes, all it did is actually bring more vexation. That's like frustration and annoyance. Why, why did it cause him to be frustrated? Because the thing that he threw his hope in to make things better actually made things worse. All it did is multiply his sorrow. Because the more he saw, the more brokenness that he saw. You can hear the tension and the sadness. Wisdom didn't only not help, it made things worse. It didn't straighten my need for satisfaction. It distanced me from it. I'm further away than when I started. It doesn't add up to much because it doesn't fix much. It just added sorrow to me. So then he goes to the next one. Next, the preacher shifts into the pursuit of pleasure, telling himself, hey, let's go chase that and see if that's the key to life. And the crux here isn't hard to understand. The focus is enjoy himself. And whatever pleasure seemed good, whatever thing his eye wanted, everything that he looked at, everything that I think maybe that road, maybe that road will make me happy. He chased them all. He says, behold, this didn't work either. It too was heavy, vapor, smoke, fleeting, and did not fulfill. We touched on this last week, and I'll bring that back to our forefront. He's a powerful king. So if he goes, hey, man, I'm going to send it for pleasure, he sent it, right? He has the capacity. He has the, the money. He has the time. He has the power. He had the ability to drive that experiment all the way down the road. We only got so much money and so much time, so much power, not limiting factors for him. So he sought the first categories of laughter and just kind of pleasure in general. And this one was super interesting. I didn't realize this until studying it this time. Look, look what he said. When I pursued laughter, it became mad, like insane. There's this thing that happens if you watch much comedy or really just those who have a, a high pursuit of like the gratification through amusement. Things tend to go, if you watch, things go from funny to dark to utterly jacked up and depraved. Right? What, what, what once started as like, haha, becomes like, oh my gosh. And this is what he was talking about here. If you seek out amusement and laughter, people begin to laugh at what shouldn't be laughed at. They begin to find like this joy and satisfaction over what should make us weep and be disturbed. The preacher says this is actually sickening and insanity. If you chase that road, it's going to lead you someplace dark that you never thought it was going to take you. This is a warning. Be careful about what you accept in laughter and look at the world and how they glorify and things that we shouldn't laugh at. It's, 
it's a, it's a sickening thing to see people begin to, to laugh at and take pleasure at what they should lament and cry and weep and should disgust someone. He goes, that's not a good road. It actually leads you to ins- insanity. So then he shifts back to other forms of pleasure and landed on the quick realization that pleasure in general isn't that useful. Again, he, he's looking for results. What's the telos? What's the end? What's, what's the payoff? What do I get in my account at the end? In chasing pleasure, he goes, the reality is not very much because to chase pleasure is to chase what pleases you. And the problem with what pleases you and I is it wears off really fast. So from desire to sex to alcohol to possessions to pursuits to vacation, whatever your thing is, when looking to satisfy the heart through pleasure long term, it's like trying to, to fill a cup as fast as you can, not paying attention to the cup has a huge hole in the bottom. It does not matter how much you dump in there. It's emptying out, and before too long, it's going to be empty all over again. No matter how hard you work, it's not going to fulfill. This is why he says pleasure is useless to be an end to what you're looking for. Why? Because it never finishes. It's never done. It's never complete. Pleasure is like an appetite. It always comes back for more. No matter how much you feed it, it's, I'm back. And it needs to be fed and fed and fed. From one angle of pleasure, he says, hey, I tried to, I tried to cheer my body with wine, right, with alcohol. And, and here's the, ca- the caveat in verse 3. While my heart still guided me with wisdom. What does that mean? He didn't take the e-brake off. Right? There's still a little bit of a seatbelt there. He, he looked to make his heart happy through what we'll call a somewhat responsible deep dive into booze. And that caveat is important here because many of us who maybe struggle with alcohol or finding fulfillment in it, we'll, we'll run to the hardcore alcoholic and go, well, of course that guy's going to burn his life down. But I'm just like, Saturdays, friend time, family time, kids are in bed time, fun time. Like that's my alcohol time. It's that guy who's like, that guy's going to destroy his life. I got it. He's going, hey, I tried it that way. It didn't work. I tried to be the controlled, fun, not crazy guy. It left me empty. It didn't work. There are scriptures about wine being given to gladden the heart. There's a gift to be enjoyed. Maybe you haven't been taught that before. The preacher isn't going against that here. He's just saying if you look to it to bring you more than just like a worshipful gratitude, it will crush you and it will not work. The preacher shifts again to another form of pleasure, stuff and wealth, right? Knowledge didn't work, booze didn't work, now stuff. I love his direct to the point. He goes, I made great things, like good stuff. Amazing stuff. People dream of this stuff. Like I built homes. If you're old like me, like MTV Cribs homes. (laughs) Google it if you don't know. I planted entire vineyards. I didn't just get a, a good bottle of wine. Hillside, best scrapes, best wine. I did that. I made parks, not little playgrounds, like national forest parks. We went into the, to the park at Pikes Peak over the summer and it was amazing and sprawling. He's like, I made those. Probably better than that. It was amazing. Everything that the heart can imagine. I made pools. Not like kiddie pools. Like rich person spas bigger than oceans of fun pools. 
these concepts are, are signals to us of he dove into the deepest, highest, fanciest things that you could possibly dive into. Most of us can't afford a super, super fancy bottle of wine. Again, this guy built vineyards to make rooms full of the best wine that anyone could ever get. He's at another level. Uh, I don't have nice grass or grass in my backyard. We mow weeds. This guy planted forests, immaculate forests. And oh yeah, some of his pools, they just happen to kind of water the forests. You may be able to afford a a kiddie pool. Maybe maybe if you got that, that big money, maybe you got a hot tub. Dude makes spas. The best stuff money could buy, bought 110 of all of them. Then outside of standard possessions, he said that he had slaves, even some born in his own house. For them, that would have been people working under him. It's a little bit different than ours, but he said, I had animals, not just a few. I had herds and flocks. Like some guy might be like, hey, I saved up. I got four goats. He's like, I got 14,000 flocks. He had more. He had gold and silver, enough to dive in like Scrooge McDuck. I had so much of the stuff. I had several kingdoms worth just in a back shed because I didn't know what to do with it. I had singers. Who, who buys singers? Just to amuse me, like, party, come sing. I had concubines. There's no hiding what this is. 300 concubines. He was chasing sex. 300 live-in ladies from all over the world to chase any road of pleasure he possibly wanted to. This is the delight of sons of man that it's talking about. He's saying, just quite frankly, I had more sex than you could shake a stick at. Any woman, anything, any road, all of it, tried it all. Verse 9 says, because of his possessions, he became greater than anyone before him. This is in worldly stature. He was a rich, rich man. He had more toys, more prized possessions, more mansions, more gold than anyone. His posture for a time is, while still holding to wisdom, I will not withhold anything. Anything I want, I'm going for it. Any possession, any desire, I will not hold back. Every day is try it day, and the answer to all things I want is yes. I threw myself into pleasure and desire and work and accomplishment and kingdoms and hobbies and literally everything under the sun and yet all of my toil, all that it gave me was a moniker of satisfaction during it and then it was gone. It too was vapor. It was chasing the the wind. So he wraps back to the same frustrating conclusion as before. No matter how much he worked, or attained, or made, or collected, or experienced from laughter to sex, to mansions, to wine, to pools, to spas, to anything you can imagine. It was all heaven. It was all vapor. It was all just smoke. In the end, the telos was not much gained. It didn't really do much. What the preacher is showing us is that pleasure won't work because it won't stop. The more you get the more you want. The problem of the equation is the more you get doesn't equal the more you are satisfied, though. 
Rockefeller, the famous American business mogul who at one time owned at least 1% of the wealth of the entire United States. It was said that he owned 90% of the gas and oil across the United States. When asked, how much money do you need? Like 1% of all of it. How much do you need? What is enough? Kind of laughed and answered just a little more. Just a little more. And it mirrors the old saying that goes like this, and this one hit me. I gave you everything you ever wanted. And it wasn't what you wanted. Hear me, life cannot be won or filled by stuff that you get. The pleasure you find in creation under the sun will not satisfy your heart since the heart and soul were made for more than creation could give. This is the logic of the opening of chapter one of the book of Romans. You can go check it out. It's the logic that was written about in Ecclesiastes, carried to Romans, and carries over to 2,000 years later in our day. You will not win the day by, in the words of last week, collecting another can of peaches and another and another and another. It will not work. The cynic may hear this, my cynical brother or sister, and say, okay, give me, give me a, break, a break. Dude's insane. You're really telling me that, that, that wisdom is worthless. Well, the preacher answers that in 12 and 13. Absolutely not. He says, wisdom isn't worthless. I've tried it. It's definitely better than being an idiot. It's better than folly. There's more to gain in the light than in the dark, but the problem is you can't get more out of wisdom than, it, than, than it's actually possible for, for you to get from it. Wisdom won't make anything new under the sun. It won't fix what needs fixing. And even the wise, this is, this is part of his consternation, even the wise end up in the same place as the fool in the grave. You can be the smartest dude in the world, still gonna die. The wise person can't dodge calamity and heartache. Wisdom, again, isn't ultimately something that gains you that much then. It's like vanity. It's fruitless. It's chasing the, the wind. It's there for a minute. Feels cool for a minute. Then it's gone. This reality caused the preacher to say at one point, and he's not just saying dark things for us to interpret. He went through the darkness himself. He said, I hated my life. Why? Because I gave it everything to really find something out there that would profit me and satisfy. Like I went for it. I devoted like countless years to wisdom and hard work and chasing my desires and making cool stuff. And I chased desire like the deer pants for water and it did absolutely nothing. I, decades I spent on this. It didn't even move the needle. So he says, the work that I once really enjoyed and set my heart on later in life, I ended up hating it. Why? Because all of my accomplishments, all that I gained, I had to leave to someone after me. He filters nothing. And he goes, I don't even know if that guy's going to deserve it. I could end up giving it to some fool who squanders all that I worked hard on. Listen to the undertone of, of what he's saying that's bothering him here. Once you die, you can't control any of the stuff that you controlled before. That stuff that you found pleasure in and happiness, no matter how much you get or how much you amass or how good you think you did or, or I set up trust and you, you can't control it anymore when you're dead. 
all that you get, all that you gathered can be scattered in ashes and not very much time after you. All that you gain can turn into some fool's Vegas trips and Pokemon cards. That'd be hard to swallow, right? You work all of your days for some fool to get some toys. This reality didn't just fail to make the preacher satisfied and find joy. It caused him deep angst and sorrow. Again, he ended up further from joy than when he started because he realized that he couldn't control nearly as much as he hoped to. Dead men can't take their wealth. The old saying is dead men don't need pockets. Why? Because you're not grabbing stuff to, to pop in your coat. Judge things rightly for what they are and what eternal significance they have. We'll read again the last two verses. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw from the hand of God for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner... He is given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. Read that over and over this week. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. In the end of chapter two, he's trying to make sure that the wheels don't fall off. Right? He went dark, but he's like, okay, I'm going to bring you back now. Follow me. He's not going scorched earth. Nothing is good. Life is terrible. There's nothing great. His point is not that life always has to be the worst. The point is to show us that we shouldn't try and get from life or creation things that it cannot deliver to us. That's the point. Satisfaction, ultimate meaning, eternal joy, a kind of peace in the soul the world will never be able to give you. This is why the preacher says, friends, there's nothing better than for a person to eat, drink, find enjoyment in their life and their work and their pursuits. Because we could, we could maybe see that and be like, oh, he... He said before, like pleasure and fun and work and all that, like vanity, no good. And now he's saying it's good. Well, God isn't a fun hater. Life isn't meant to be doom and gloom. So we should, we should have a good time. Laugh, have wine, make goals, aim for them. Work hard, make some money, buy some fun stuff. If you're married, hey, enjoy the good gift of sex. God made the pleasure thing. It's not evil. The key here is to see that everything good comes from God. And that when a man pleases God, like actually obeys God, the return on that is the Lord gives them wisdom and joy. There's been an overreaction to the prosperity gospel in my heart and maybe a lot. The prosperity gospel claims, hey, if you obey God and you do this and you honor him rightly and you do the hard thing for God, he will return your blessing with material wealth and abundance. There's all those kind of fancy words where you get all the stuff that you ever wanted. Well, that message should be condemned as heresy. But we can't overcorrect and think that that God does nothing for us or there's no kind of reaction or return when we obey the Lord because there is a return. And there is a promise from that. You can walk, if you're seeking the Lord and obeying the Lord, you can end up walking in a kind of wisdom that the world doesn't have. You can end up enjoying what you do and have this sort of thankfulness that permeates your life. Because even if you don't have a lot, you know eternity's still coming and your dad is rich. 
The preacher is saying to be content with what the Lord provides, to be thankful for what he gives. It allows a type of laughter that's not mad, a joy that won't fade like smoke or disappear on you, and a wisdom that is a gift. Pleasing the Lord will not steal your life. It's the path to finding the good life for all who believe. This is the fight of faith to believe. While a sinner, those who don't care about pleasing God, those who who want to get what they want and ignore God during the process, their ultimate lot is to never stop chasing the wind, to gather and collect and gather and collect in another can and another can and another thing and another pursuit and another pleasure. They're going to run in that cycle of insanity forever and never getting off and believing that it's going to satisfy them, never admitting that it's not going to work. This is their lot. The beauty that we're trying to see is the Lord and his kindness going, hey, you don't have to do that. Ecclesiastes 12, let's just end the book. I'm joking, verse 13 and 14 though. The end of the matter. Like I'm saying, all of this is for you to hear this. All has been heard. What's the ending conclusion? Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We have most of the book left, so we don't need to kind of fight to hit the home run or make this week more than it needs to be. But it would be helpful to kind of align our gaze with even more of the preacher's point. If you go back and read the text from today, this phrase begins to pop up over and over and over again. This I devoted for myself. I sought enjoyment for myself. I devoted myself to pleasure. I became great myself, right? You getting it? I gained more for myself, more than anyone who ever came before. I myself was wiser than everyone. The language of me and my and self is all over. The heart of the preacher pushed to fight for happiness in his own power. The more he pushed to gain things for himself, believing like over the next hill, I'm going to find it. The more he became perplexed and frustrated and upset. It's like the harder he fought, the more it multiplied his hatred of his own life. This is the message that the entire culture walks in, though. This is the water we swim in. This is the mantra of today's world. You do you. You fight for you. You be you. You get what you deserve. You get yours. Fight, grind, strive for number one. You deserve this. Self-actualization. Get what you want. Chase what you want. Be what you want. Do what you want. Go hard. Get it all. Feed the thing. And all of your dreams will come too. preachers is telling us in kindness, hey man, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. You don't have to scream at everyone else who's doing it. Don't chase them down the road. The path to happiness isn't found in selfishness and feeding what you desire. It doesn't mean that desires and pleasure and things can't be good, but the, the path isn't there. Gaining the entire world for yourself is not where you will find what you're looking for. Where you find what you're looking for is in the unexpected places where you fight to obey. The world fights to get all that they want. Believers live as the hands and feet of Christ. 
Think about the, the difference. The world fights to get everything they desire, thinking it will make them happy. It doesn't work and ultimately leaves them with not very much. We find internal, uh, eternal impact in giving a glass of water in the name of Christ. It does work and has eternal reward. Again, it, the faith, it's either everything or it's nothing. You're going to have to decide, am I content in being the fool to follow Christ or not? Because you're going to feel crazy to follow him in this world. His message is the opposite of theirs. Mark 9, 41, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The preacher is reframing the world and the entire lens that you have for it. The world thinks it's big stuff that make you happy and make life meaningful. Houses and wealth, early retirement, good retirement, fun life, sexual experiences, toys. The preacher is showing us it's actually, it's actually kind of the small stuff. Following Jesus through loving well, sharing and caring, hospitality and mercy, and brothers and sisters that you get to walk through and sharing your life with, those are the things that matter. And those are the counterintuitive things that actually last. It's the big stuff. It's the big... He's going, no, no, no. That's not where you actually find stuff that you carry with you. You can gain the entire earth and not take a penny of it with you beyond the grave. But again, to give a glass of water in Christ's name is an eternal reward that will never be snatched and the Lord won't forget it. There's some interesting things here. There's reward that you're stacking up by, by obeying the Lord behind closed doors where no one sees him and honoring him and obey him. That's a greater reward than millions and millions of dollars, he's telling us. The world says, get for yourself. God actually leads us to freedom by giving and sharing. Pour out, obey, enjoy what you have in gratitude. One pass steals your joy. And the other secures it. And what the preacher is just going to ask is, hey, which one are you going to take? I'm going to give you like 18 forms of application. We have to decide, will we chase what the world says or will we believe the Father? Will we set our eyes on, on a million little things to make life worthwhile? Or will we have good lives and, and, and seek after things, but, but have an open-handed kind of relationship with the stuff around us? I want to be careful here because we have more to do in this book. But I hope today that maybe our faith will grow in investing in obedience. Instead of selling out for finding joy in the things that our neighbors are chasing. Hear this, every identity that we try and live out of other than a child of God will ultimately be pulled from our tight grip and it will not satiate or give us peace. Think about just loose identities. The rich guy, that's who I am. You're going to die, not anymore. Right? The, the, the lady chaser, someday you're going to be old and creepy. Right? The, the, the super fine lady, someday age is coming. The football player, your knees are going to blow, bud. At some point it's gone. The business leader, recessions, probably going to be a better, smarter guy coming after you. 
right? The CrossFitter. At some point, you can't do pull-ups anymore. We can go on and on and on and on. Everything that you invest your being in other than a child of God will ultimately be gone. What if we just sat under that realization? And that's not bad news. Everything else will ultimately sip outside of your fingers and let you down. But to follow the Lord through following Jesus, to cut against the grain by being obedient instead of rebellious will pay off and last for eternity. And it'll actually matter and it'll shape you and it'll change you to prepare you for eternity and it'll stand forever. Again, I would remind you with this. Christ has not come to enslave you or steal from you. He's come to free you from the madness of everyone else's toil underneath the sun. Christ has paid the price for your sin, rose from the grave, offered you redemption, a new heart, a sealed heart, a new life, a new pursuit, a new identity. And each day in faith, we get to remember that and walk in that and say, this is who I am and this is what you've done and this is what I want to live out of. We get to thank him and walk in the reality of what he has done. This is, guys, this is the, the, the formation of deeper faith. Sometimes we think faith is, I said yes to Jesus. Walking out your faith is deciding what identity you'll actually live in Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. What will you point your life at? Jesus wants to give you something better. Man, you guys can come back up. What we're going to do is worship and take communion today as a practice of reminding ourselves the identity that we have been given and the price that was paid for it. This book will build. So I, don't, I don't feel a need to lay 13 different applications at your feet. Just, hey, decide which, which identity you want to live out of today. And if it is the identity of Christ, come and take the bread and the drink and know, man, he bought it all for you. 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friend, the Lord has made a way to redeem those who are lost in sin. Man, I hope our hearts are expanded. He's also given us a new, beautiful path and identity to walk in. You get to be free from the madness of pursuits that will never fix you. You get the freedom to enjoy the things that God places in your hand with, with gratitude, knowing you've got even a better phase coming afterwards. You get to laugh and have fun. Treat pleasure rightly. Make plans, fail, succeed, do any of it, knowing it's okay because your identity is a son or daughter of the Most High. So the hope is that as we worship today that your heart will be recentered on that. Tell him, thank you. Thank you for freeing me. Thank you for giving me this identity. Thank you for paying the price. Thank you for reminding me every time that I'm trying to like get back into the process of chasing the things of the world. I've done it 18 times over the last 18 months and every time you're gracious to just pull me back. Thank him for that.
Ask him to help you build your life upon the reality of what he has given you and the path that he has set you on. And worship and gratitude that he's done that. Will you stand and pray with me?